welcome to the Transport Hub podcast, a podcast series created by the Transport Research Hub at University College Dublin. I am your host, Porik Carroll. This podcast series seeks to disseminate research, industry innovations, and policy in the area of transportation and mobility. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Francesco Pila, who is a full professor in Smart and Sustainable Cities at University College Dublin School of Architecture, Planning and Environmental Policy. His work lies in the interaction between cities and technologies, and his main goal is to build better cities through technology, innovation and citizen participation. So, hi, Francesco, and thanks very much for joining us. Hi, Borek. Thank you so much for having me here. So, Francesco, maybe we could just start with, if you could just give us a nice uh, summary of your role in UCD. Well, look, uh, um, my role at the moment is, uh, well, I'm running a, a wide range of uh, projects. Uh, so projects that are mostly funded by the European Commission uh, under different frameworks. And uh, we are looking at uh, uh, different uh, sustainability challenges. So look, uh, they, they, they range from uh, tackling air pollution, uh, um, flood risk, uh, mitigating climate change, looking at various aspects of uh, sustainable mobility and so on and so forth. But what they all have in common is that we are trying to address these challenges by you know, developing tools, so technological tools uh, to support local communities in having a, an active role in actually tackling these challenges. So basically, instead of a traditional top-down approach where you, you know, implement your models, uh, try to figure out a solution and then deploy them uh, in, in urban settings, we are trying to engage a so kind of a, a twist, a twist it a, bit, a bit and put trying to put the local communities uh, in, in, in the front line. So give them an active role, give them the tools, technological tools, data, and see what happens. See if what, what is your, their contribution to tackle the challenges that they are affecting them. So obviously you're, you're in this field of work for quite, quite some time. Um, and uh, I just want to give the, the listeners a sense of how you got to where you are now today. How did you become interested in engineering? Because I understand you're you're an engineer by background. So could you maybe give us a sense of your career, how you got to where you are? Well, I, I did a bit, uh, uh, a bit of uh, every sort of engineering in my in my past. So I started from uh, environmental engineering uh, back uh, in, my, in my bachelor degree in Bologna. Then I did a, a master there uh, that was more uh, on. Uh, uh, on on, pl- on the planning side then i moved to ireland for a master in mechanical engineering and then uh, a phd in uh, in civil engineering and then i ended up in uh, in, in planning <laughs> so i did a bit of a trajectory but i think uh, the the thing that kind of uh, uh, well was the, the part uh, the event let's say that the form decide a bit my path was my uh, the time I spent in, uh, in MIT during my PhD where I started to work uh, with uh, local sensors and with uh, with citizens and basically the project was all about um, uh, mo- monitoring noise and air quality using local sensors with uh, using a citizen science approach. Mm-hmm. How did you end up in MIT? How did that come about? It uh, started because uh, it, I was at, it was the time that I was a bit struggling uh, with my PhD. It was a very broad at the time. I didn't know what to do. 
um, you know, how to, to close it properly. And so I started to look a bit around what other people were doing in different parts uh, of the world. And I came across the Sensible City Lab. And so I saw that they were doing this, uh, I was called the Copenhagen Wheel Project. It was about uh, basically instrumenting bikes with low cost sensors to monitor the different environmental variables, uh, also the air pollution. And so I thought that was very interesting. And so I just went for it. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. And I, do you still have some contacts with in, in MIT and your yeah. current work? Or? I went there again <clears throat> as part of a Fulbright Tech Impact Award in 2015. Uh, thankfully, uh, as a lecturer, not as a PhD student. So I didn't have to, to eat rice for six months uh, and starve myself. But apart from that, uh, yes, I, I, we, we continue the collaboration. I, I sent other people over there in the lab, um, in the Sensible City Lab. Uh, yes, I'm still in touch with, uh, with the director. Great. So you mentioned your PhD topic and you, at, at, at some stage you were kind of grappling with what was the main focus of it. So what was your motivation, first of all, for doing a PhD? And did you always want to become a professor or did you see it that you had an interest in research? Like, what was your motivation? Well, I think, uh, um, yeah, I, I was always interested in, in research. Uh, but at the time, if I remember, like, after I finished uh, my master in mechanical engineering, uh, I started, uh, well, I started with a, I started a company with, um, with, uh, with, three, uh, with two colleagues. It was um, uh, called Infrasonic. It was an environmental consultancy. We mostly spent our time monitoring noise at wind farm sites. And well, it was great, but I, I, at some stage I had a feeling that was not really what I wanted to do and was not really scalable. So I decided to go back to, to, um, to academia. And at the time there was this uh, opening uh, in the civil engineering department. Uh, so I met uh, my, uh, well, my former supervisor my, or future supervisor at the time. And I had a good feeling from him. And, and so that's where I could got me back in, in, in academia. So your title, Professor of Smart and Simple Cities. So that obviously spans a lot of different areas. But in terms of transport, what kind of topics and transport are you focusing on or have focused on? Look, we we did a, a very uh, well. Uh, the, the work started uh, in the tra- on the transport side. Started with the the Icecape project. We were looking at uh, um, ways to mitigate the impact from uh, transport related emissions, uh, transport related pollution. Uh, so we were looking at uh, what uh, what what we call the passive control system. But then after after a couple of years, the European Commission called them nature-based solutions. So t- we we looked at different uh, assets, uh, green assets, uh, to to use them as a, as a, as barriers for 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 air pollution coming from from traffic. Then uh, look, uh, we st- uh, I got more involved in transport with the WeCount project which was all, ab- all about uh, monitoring uh, trans- uh, basically traffic, but uh, was monitoring traffic with a, with a bit of a twist. Uh, so we, we basically got um, a lot, hundreds of uh, camera-based sensors and gave them to local communities. And it was all about basically uh, involving uh, local communities in 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 the, in traffic monitoring because I don't know if, if if you if you if you look at social media, whenever there is a traffic issue in a in a neighborhood, uh, local communities cannot do more than 
complaining on Twitter. But usually their complaints, they, they go nowhere because they, they have basically no evidence to show that there actually there is an issue in the local community. So the We Count was all about giving local communities the tools the, to, to collect the evidence about these traffic issues in the local communities. So we pushed, them, uh, pushed the project a bit further and also developed uh, hands-on analytical tools so the local communities could also analyze the data themselves and extract uh, insights. And the result was quite powerful because basically uh, local, local authorities uh, got inundated with uh, uh, complaints from uh, local communities, but this time there were complaints with uh, data and uh, proper report about uh, traffic volumes. And as a result, uh, uh, several local communities managed to get um, traffic calming measures in their local areas. So I thought that was uh, got me very excited because I, I could see the potential of this, uh, this approach. And now we, we are doing similar things in other projects. Uh, in um, in uh, Trigger, uh, Twinner, and other fancy names <laughs> that we made up for the European Commission. So when you originally proposed this topic of WeCount and getting the citizens involved, were they, were they immediately interested or kind of, this, I, I understand this is kind of maybe a new idea to a lot of, a lot of uh, citizens that maybe they're not fully usually engaged with what's going on in universities. So was there immediately quite a, a high uptake or did you find over time then kind of snowballed? Look, what, what happened is that initially in, in the proposal, we planned to deploy the sensor only in a neighborhood in, uh, in Dublin, in, exactly in, in Ringsend. Uh, and so uh, I started uh, the project with a, uh, with a workshop in, in a school uh, because I, usually schools are good gatekeepers uh, into the communities. Uh, and that went on uh, RT News. And after that, I started receiving emails from uh, all, not just all over Dublin, but all over the Ireland. So I actually had to, to leverage more funding to, to, to give sensors to more local communities. So it ended up uh, with us having sensors all over the great, greater Dublin area and not only there, but also in other towns and cities around Ireland. So um, so you, you mentioned some of your past, your present uh, projects, um, and it's a mix, you would say it's a mixture of European and domestic funding. But um, so in, in terms of the past projects, WeCount, iScape, and then some of the current projects then you're working on? Uh, there is a, a, so there is a, a, one twin air where we are looking at uh, a traffic-related pollution how to mitigate uh, traffic-related pollution uh, in indoor environments. So basically, uh, what we are doing is that uh, we are, uh, uh, well, we are using as uh, pilots uh, schools in Dublin. Uh, we are installing uh, air quality sensor outside and inside, uh, in outside the schools and inside the classrooms. And then we are developing a, a digital twin, uh, so um, a computer uh, representation of the classroom and see how we can uh, modify uh, the ventilation in the classroom to mitigate basically uh, the exposure for the kids for to to to, to traffic related pollutants i think there's a maybe overwhelming focus on external air pollution but not necessarily how that affects internal air quality so that's that's really innovative yeah. i think so because uh, look uh, uh, i think uh, uh, i mean 
it is uh, it is only one part of the solution because obviously uh, yes you can modify a pollution uh, the indoor pollution by modifying the ventilation but you are actually not uh, reducing the pollution that is outdoor so there is more that needs to be done uh, to target that problem so to reduce traffic in urban environments because otherwise this kind of uh, you know, digital twin technological solution, they, they don't go very far. So so citizen science and citizen participation features heavily in your research projects. Um, so maybe if you could give us an overview, what, what, what is citizen science as a concept? Well, you see, uh, cit- citizen science, there, there are a lot of uh, definitions uh, and takes about uh, what it is, different uh, citizen science, but generally, a citizen, uh, citizen science is all about uh, basically uh, in giving people an active role in a scientific project. So it's all about basically having expanding your team of researchers from what you have in your lab with just uh, common people that they might not have a, a technical expertise in your field. So there are, yeah, whenever you do a citizen science project, there are a lot of, uh, well, advantages and disadvantages at the same time. The advantages, obviously, is that instead of having a ten, a five, 10 people helping you collecting data, you might have uh, 500, 1,000. The disadvantages of, and the criticism uh, about citizen science is the, the, the most obvious one is the, the data quality. Because obviously you're you're working with uh, non-trained uh, researchers, so unless you have uh, proper protocols in place, uh, uh, you might have issues with data quality. Uh, but then, as well, uh, I think the most important and powerful point of uh, citizen science is that actually, you know, science is not something done in 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 the ivory tower as it used to be, but it's something that now is done. Uh, with the general public and with all the uh, benefits in you know terms of behavioral change so get them to know better the issue understand it better by collecting the data engaging them in solving the issue as well and so that has an, a lot of uh, more benefits mm. and how long has this idea of citizen science been around is it a relatively new concept or has it been around quite a while currently has been around for uh, uh, well that's what i tell my students for over a thousand years, when uh, <laughs> it, with this apparently started with this practice uh, in Japan uh, of uh, a recording whenever the cherry trees were blossoming, and this practice has been going on for over a thousand years in Japan, and they were able to show the impacts of uh, changes in climate because now basically. I think there is over a month of uh, delay of, of delay in uh, cherry blossoming that has been recorded through the, this, 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 this practice. So there's also the concept of co-design or co-creation. Uh, is, is that, does that differ from citizen science or is it part of this citizen science well, area? Well, area. In, in theory, they, I mean, if, if you look at the theory, they, 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 they are two different things. In practice, uh, I mean, at least my take is, is that they should be going together because they are part of the, of, I mean, they should go together when you, uh, when you try to address uh, sustainability challenges because it's part of the same process, uh, at least in my projects. You engage the local communities in identifying the problem and start to co-develop uh, the solution. And then you should also engage them in monitoring uh, the impacts. 
uh, of the uh, the solution that they, they that you deploy with them and that's where citizen science will go in at least uh, f- from my side this also involves you know heavy stakeholder engagement as well i, I imagine and um what is your take on stakeholder engagement and how would you how would you approach that? Look, this stakeholder engagement, yes, it is part of it. It's it's a bit of a, a broader um, approach because at, at the end of the day, uh, the stakeholders that they engage that you engage as part of a project uh, more than likely are not the same people that are going to be out monitoring, uh, you, you know, uh, monitoring the impacts of intervention through the citizen science activities. Uh, so the stakeholder engagement it is critical because uh, especially when when you look at uh, a, a real uh, implementing solution in real life settings, you need to have uh, an awful lot of stakeholders on board from the design phase of the solution because then it creates a sense of ownership. It allows you to to overcome uh, some barriers, understand the drivers. And, and then uh, you know makes your life. I mean, it's a lot of investment of time at the beginning uh, to engage uh, local uh, local municipality, local stakeholders, uh, local industry, uh, high level stakeholders. But then it pays out on the long term because then whenever you deploy the solution, you can show them that it's the solution that you develop together, how it works. It, uh, and then in I mean, what happened in my project that all this process allow me uh, allow for the solution to be also implemented in policies. So we started this this kind of approach in Icecape. It took the life out of us to engage all the stakeholders, all the stakeholders in six different European cities. But then, uh, uh, what it happened is that whenever we started to show them this passive control system, nature-based solution to um, to mitigate uh, exposure to traffic related pollution uh, well they were after a while they were they were fully on board so then when we had to deploy them in real life settings they were all for it so we deployed them put the sensor out we show them also the data how they were reducing the actually they were acting as a porous barrier and then all of a sudden uh, they started to pop up in uh, in policy documents so we are uh, during the first two years of a project we had two policies uh, new policies related to our interventions in london which was not even one of our pilot city we we had the pilot in guildford then uh, in the next couple of years we had uh, we, they were implemented also in the climate action plan in dublin uh, they were implemented in Vanta, in policies, in Bologna, and so it, it, it was very successful. So, on a more technical point, then, so you, in terms of the, the analytical approaches that you would implement in your in your work, from a so geospatial analysis is something that's mentioned as well in your the work you do and the modeling of urban dynamics. So you're you're part of the you lead the spatial dynamics lab in UCD. Uh, could you maybe just maybe talk about some of the analytical approaches that you you use in your research or you have used in your research and, and from a transport perspective? Well, we, we are doing a bit of everything. Like uh, now we, um, we've been doing a lot of uh, data analysis on the data that we collect with the traffic sensors. So we have uh, over 200 sensors uh, across Ireland that they are monitoring uh, um, traffic volumes, uh, composition and speed. So there is a lot of work on that data. 
Um, then uh, we, are, we are looking also at other um, approaches like trying to integrate uh, different uh, machine learning, AI in, in, in our work. Uh, obviously, we in, in, in my team, uh, we um, yeah we have some trans transport experts, but we, we, the team is very multidisciplinary. So we try always to to leverage this this multidisciplinarity and come up with with new ideas, and new approaches that involve different different kind of solutions. So uh, we it's it's I guess we, we are we are trying to experiment in different ways. Uh, but for the transport side, uh, uh, we, we are also trying to, to put some, some uh, new solution in place, uh, one of which is the, um, the bike library. So in that part, yes, there is no, at the moment, yeah, well, there's not much data analysis because we are still uh, at the uh, deployment phase. So we are, uh, we are uh, distributing the bikes in the, in the, in the schools. Uh, but then uh, as part of the, the one, once the bike will be being around for a while we will have enough data also to implement this uh. so maybe you can just uh, maybe define what is a bike library so yeah, yeah well <laughs> yeah i should have done that first probably <laughs> well the bike library uh, it's uh, basically a, a, a bike well let's call it a bike sharing scheme uh, it is all about uh, basically providing uh, families with a with a, with a bike sharing scheme that it was is not yet available in in the city because if you go around the, if you want to go around Dublin a, I, yes there are plenty of solutions like plenty of fantastic bike sharing schemes but they cater only for single users so for commuters people going around you know tourists people going around by themselves or with friends if you want but but not for families so if you have kids and you want to bring them to school you either drive or walk because going with a, a three-year-old three, three kid on a bus peak time you definitely don't do it so we, we, we and also i don't know if you saw if you noticed that whenever schools are closed you just fly through the city the, the traffic is completely different there's, a, there's half of the traffic around the city council so oh, i thought maybe it's time to have a bike sharing scheme also for families trying to cut that, that slice of traffic uh, and you know reduce con congestions so basically, the bike uh, the bike library is about uh, uh, allowing families in schools to borrow bikes for a long term, like you would do with a, in a traditional library with a book, and experiencing a, the different kind of electric bikes. So traditional e-bikes, e electric long tail, e cargo bikes, e foldable. See how they feel. Uh, and hopefully get getting used to them and leave the car home whenever they drop the kids uh, to school. So it's about them. Uh, you know, uh, all these electric bikes are expensive, uh, so that uh, could be a barrier for them to be, you know, for the uptake by, by normal people. So I think by giving them the, the, the chance to try them and getting used to them, it, it might help to reduce also that barrier. and get these uh, e-bikes and e-cargo e or get them to become a, a valuable 
an effective alternative to cars to drop kids to school. So basically, um, they pick up the bike and they can keep it for three, four months. So three, four months, uh, and then uh, we just, uh, at that stage, uh, we'll just uh, move on to a separate school. So basically, now we are doing a round of uh, 10 schools around Dublin. Uh, So we are are distributing the bikes uh, while I'm speaking, uh, and we leave them with the parents uh, till uh, end of August, uh, beginning of September, and then with the families, yes, and then uh, we'll uh, we'll move on and move them to ten, ten, 10 other schools. We just ask them for a deposit, which will be returned whenever they they, they give the, the bikes back. But that is just for you know just uh, just uh, just to ensure that the, the bikes are are returned. So behavior change is obviously a big part of your your work and the deployment of the bike library, for example, and the the air quality sensors as well. Like so. What what are your plans and what's your your future plans for research and or your the direction your your research is going has it changed in recent years or is it kind of a something you're becoming more interested in or well um I think like in the next uh, uh, couple of years I'll I'll focus more and more on on the transport side so I'm hoping to to scale up uh, the bike library. Uh, to um, not just to Dublin, but to expand it uh, to to the rest of Ireland, so that it's fingers crossed uh, will happen. But also, I'm I'm starting a new um, Horizon Europe project that's called uh, uh, Reallocate, which is all about uh, vulnerable road users, and basically it's just what I said before, trying to uh, integrate uh, infrastructural intervention with. Uh, a nudging intervention, behavioral intervention, uh, to see uh, how what needs to be done to make uh, um, mobility safer uh, for uh, for vulnerable road users, so ped- pedestrians, cyclists, uh, so on and so forth, uh, in urban environments. So we'll have uh, uh, 10 pilots uh, in Europe. Uh, they are a bit all over Europe. Don't ask me. <laughs> no. Well, I, uh, they are basically 10 cities uh, across Europe. Uh, but uh, the the website, uh, the, the project has just started. So the website will be up and running quite soon. So there'll be more information there. Great. So, so it's called Reallocate. So yes. Is that looking at also reallocation of road space? Is that one of the things you're looking at? Exactly. Yeah. It is all about rebalancing. You are exactly right. It's all about uh, uh, rebalancing how road space is allocated to different transport modes. Obviously, in, 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 in a lot of cities, it's skewed towards uh, uh, um, cars. Uh, so what we want to see is that trying to balance it more towards uh, not just uh, uh, active modes, but also public transport. Because obviously, if you want to, to reduce transport emissions, it cannot be done just with active travel. They need also to be an efficient uh, public transport. So, based on your research, you discussed there a lot of your a lot of your research is about deploying different technologies, uh, either sensors or, or other types of Internet of Things uh, tech. So, what what is your your th- your thoughts on what uh, how that actually stimulates behavior change, or is it more about collecting data? Like, what in terms of intelligent transport systems, do you think there's more of that to come? Look, I think it is about uh, both. It is about uh, collecting uh, more data, uh, more hyper-local data, so deploying more sensors, see what happens in different parts of the cities. 
but it is also about uh, uh, engaging uh, the citizens with the data that you are collecting. Uh, so it is not just information that we are collecting, uh, data that we are collecting to write uh, papers or to provide feedback or information to the local authority, but most importantly, it is information that should be used by the citizens to understand that, that whatever they do around the city has an impact on their local environment and they are the first actors that they could actually do something to change the data that they are collecting. Mm -hmm. and by the way, I mean having an impact on sustainability or sustainable mobility in, the, in this instance. Do you think that there's a kind of more on the horizon in terms of more innovations coming that will be make our make our transport system more intelligent. I think all the innovation is uh, or it should be on the people side. So or, or you can make I mean a city as smart as you want, but if if the citizens are not <laughs> part of it, uh, it's kind of pointless. So what we are doing is uh, we are playing with different uh, participatory tools at the moment. Uh, we, we are we, we are experimenting with uh, virtual reality uh, just to keep uh, uh, people in, meet, in meta uh, happy. With, so me metaverse, if you want, uh, we are but. We are also trying different uh, um, gamification approach. So uh, we are we are using at the moment we, we are uh, we are finding uh, Minecraft very useful to engage with local communities. So we are we are we are playing around to see how it can be used for for planning purposes, also to uh, as a way to reimagine the the road network how it's is distributed between different transport modes so is it it's not obviously just for kids it's for for adults too that that they did use minecraft well you'll be surprised i mean at the beginning every single adult will tell you that they don't even know what minecraft is but then if you dig a bit more you find out that most of the people at least have played once with minecraft so once you get them in they start they start playing whatever is the age, kids, uh, teenagers, uh, college students, adults. They all, they all, they are all able to contribute uh, through mine. And in terms of uh, decarbonization, do you do you see there's more that the citizens could be involved in kind of designing solutions for decarbonizing transport, or do you think that they could be involved more in the kind of decision making process than they currently are? Generally speaking. I think they should because uh, I mean I as as far as uh, as I I could see from you know different experiences uh, at a European level, a top-down policies so policies that they are enforced from the local authority onto the citizens tend not to have a long life, not to succeed. So unless these policies are developed also with the, the contribution of the, 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 the local communities, the people living there, that they are affected by the solution. I don't think the solutions are, are bound to be successful at all. So yeah, there's probably more that needs to be done there. Yes, I think uh, there is m more work that needs to be done in how to, to engage uh, local communities in the planning process. So, and in the decision making and so on and so forth. There's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. And is this something common to many European cities that you're working with, or is it kind of, because obviously we're based in Dublin, but you work with a lot of European countries in your European projects? Yes, it, it is something that is common uh, to many European projects. 
Now, there are actually a set, a, a special set of uh, European cities, the one that they are signing up uh, the contract with the European, well, they already signed up the contract with the European Commission to become a climate neutral by 2030, so 100 uh, uh, climate neutral cities by 2030. Those uh, are facing similar challenges. Uh, yes, uh, they are all signing up to be climate neutral by 2030, but most of them, I say, they are struggling to understand how this will happen. Uh, well, uh, because most of them, uh, they will have to drastically cut uh, their uh, transport emissions, uh, and this is not easy unless they have uh, the, the local population on board. Yeah, yeah. So, what recommendations would you maybe offer to local government? Well, I, I would, I would recommend to have a, a proactive approach as much as possible and not reactive. So, start to engage with the local communities. Start to think. Well, co-develop uh, ideas, plans, uh, interventions as soon as possible, and not try to leave it uh, to the last minute because that. Is I mean, changing behavior, changing uh, transport behavior is something that doesn't happen from one day to the next. It takes a long time. Uh, It takes a lot of resources and a a lot of uh, commitment. So it it needs to be. It should. It needs to be started yesterday, not 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 tomorrow. Okay. Well, I think that's everything uh, on the agenda to discuss. So thank you very much, Francesco, for your time and. I'm sure there's many more uh, research projects to come uh, that will cover transport. So looking forward to to seeing what's down the line with your research. So thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Parag.